Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports, and I do that with my longtime partner here at Columbia, Joe Favorito. Long time and no longer first time, actually. Tom. That's right. So. Um, and this is the first one we're doing together in the new In 2019. Year. Although I think we I think we pitched the Seth Rabinovich yeah. as the first show, yeah. But technically, this is the first one. Yep. A little bit of inside information about how of, we do this. The magic of radio. Um, but Joe's been a busy man. I've been pretty busy. Joe was at CES last week. Something we're going to talk about uh, when we get into this conversation, um, which we're really looking forward to having because we have a guest today who we've been wanting to have on the show. I think since we started, I think you and I, when we established our initial list, uh, John's name was on a short list. And we finally made it happen. So we're really pleased to welcome um, a very well-known and very highly accomplished sports media executive, arguably one of the most accomplished executives, at least on the digital side of sports media, someone who has spent time at CBS and the NBA and Sports Illustrated and ESPN. It's an amazing resume, ton of great uh, experiences along the way, real pioneer in the digital space and someone that I kind of grew up with on the digital side with my background. So we're really pleased to welcome John Kozner. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. Exciting to be here. Yeah, so there's a lot we want to talk about. I think the theme of this is probably going to be disruption and how things are so crazy right now on the media side of sports as it relates to both uh, presentation, distribution, technology, etc., so we're going to get to know John a little bit, as is our custom with our with each of our guests. But why don't we actually just jump right in, and we can transition to a little bit back backstory on John as we move into this. But this is fresh on both your minds because both of you guys were in Las Vegas last week for CES, mm-hmm. the Consumer Electronics Show. I, I I had serious FOMO last week that I was not there. Uh, the sports segment of CES has grown quite dramatically uh, over the last few years, and I realized as I was reading Joe's feed on Twitter that there was an awful lot going on that uh, we all should have been paying lot, attention to. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Yeah, so Joe, why don't you go first quickly, and then John can jump in and, and then use that as a launch pad for his uh, bio. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think one of the things that you didn't see, if you anybody who's ever watched Bug Spunny, is smell-o-vision replacing television. <laughs> but that was really the only thing that I, I think that was kind of missing. Uh, 8K, uh, 8K, 5G, I was lucky enough uh, walking through the convention center, which is unbelievably overwhelming for anybody who's ever been there. Yeah. Uh, my friend Chris Maria is the head of PR for LG, and he actually took myself and Melanie Wallner from Drone Racing League, and we walked around, and he explained everything that LG was trying to do, including you know thin glass TVs that roll up into a box, and they actually had... Um, uh, 8G. You saw a demo of that? Uh, eight, um, 8K cameras, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which they literally had a guy standing in Times Square with a drone that flew overhead from about 600 feet. And you could, they said, read the cup, his Starbucks cup that he has in his hand. Wow. So it was amazingly clear. Wow. Um, they had other TVs, you know, washing machines that talk to you. You know, <laughs> GoPro had a big setup. Uh, obviously, Intel had a really big setup. Um, and then John and I were both at uh, the demo that the NHL did for player tracking. Nice. Uh, lots of tied to that G word gambling, which they didn't want to talk about. But right, well, we'll talk about that today. Yeah. Um, and then there was a lot of stuff. Obviously, um, you know, Adam Silver's announcement uh, with Jack Dorsey, uh, who came in in his kind of like rugged, unkempt way, and and kind of. I thought he looked like Peter Dinklage, by the way. <laughs> Peter, <laughs> Peter Dinklage, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, um, 
you know, he did his best Nate Silver imitation for anybody who's been at, at Sloan and wonder if in Nate what, just kind of just looked like he just woke up. Oh, okay. Walked in the room. <laughs> um, but that was really an interesting thing, which was segued before that by David Levy talking about kind of what they were going to do. Um, and it was it was interesting to see the different people that are out there and kind of the technology and where this is going to go. And frankly, a lot of people admitted they really don't know where a lot of this is going to go, but. Um, it's obvious that, that we are in an evolving business that is going to constantly change. And someone said if you would have gone to CES three years ago and looked at three or five years ago and looked at 3D TV, which is no longer in existence, right. you know, how much of this will actually play out. But I think the personalization of everything is really where so, it's So, guys, the go. focus of sports, let's, let's just uh, t- to try to track this. So uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, the importance of sports as a segment, let's say three years ago, two years ago, and then this year. Because it feels like it's, I mean, from afar, because I haven't been in a few years, it feels like it's growing in terms of the coverage. I think it's like a 10. Yeah. And and, and the reason I say that is it's the only thing that people follow live. Yep, 100%. Care about in mass. And my point of view is also influenced because we're in the midst of NFL playoffs where the NFL has had a resurgence this year, which I think is also a great story, mm-hmm. considering difficult season last year, lowered expectations. They have about as exciting a Final Four as one could get. And as we all know, sports has led technology evolution always. And that's one of the reasons that you know I and colleagues remain bullish on sports rights and where that's all headed. I would just add at CES... The two things I really observed were aggressive placement by Google, especially around Mm -hmm. the Google Assistant. Between the Google Assistant and Amazon Alexa, you can clearly see the beginnings of an audio ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Wasn't totally clear to me where that was going to go or how the inner workings of a lot of these devices Mm -hmm. are going to work, but clearly the ground is being laid. Mm for the Internet of Things in a very significant way. Second, there is a really heavy automotive presence. In, in, in many cases with voice tacked in, it felt like you were at the car show mm-hmm. as you walked around. For me, the indispensable part of CES is just that everybody's there. Yeah. And Except for me. Except for you, Tom, but hopefully, <laughs> right. hopefully in 2020. Yeah, I, you know, I'm you're doing me. a home and home, so maybe <laughs> yeah, in 2020 exactly. you'll join I'll us. I'll be there. Yeah. But... Um, with the legalization, at least on a state-by-state basis, of gambling, sports gambling, that even ratcheted it up what was going on at yep. CES this year. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because when, when I worked for uh, some technology magazines before I got into sports, I used to go to CES every year. And you, would, you wouldn't even hear a mention of sports as a category. Like, literally had nothing to do with mm-hmm. CES. It was all about mainstream entertainment, mostly television. Um, and now, it's, as John said, it just seems like it's the any of the interesting stories had some kind of sports connection. And even you had, you had Danny Keens um, talking about where AR and VR is going to go, and he was very realistic in saying, "Look, we're still really early, but in the next eighteen months to two years, this is going to be much more real as devices change and glasses become more more present, and you know you can really live the experiences that you haven't been able to live before now." Right. That's interesting to see if it's going to play out. You know, that's his business that he's in now. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was, um, you know, there were certainly enough sound bites that came out of it. Right. Um, the other thing that, that was, I had talked to Angela Ruggiero on afterwards. You know, they talked a lot about esports, 
and the evolution from esports to gaming and the gamification of everything is something that I said you guys got to kind of grasp because as much as people talk about esports, it's really gaming and the mm-hmm. gamification of everything that's going on, whether it's AR or VR, is is changing the experience for the consumer. Yeah. So, all right. So, um, John, we got it. We got to let everybody hear the the, the Kozner story. So back up a little bit. We'll move into all these cool topics in a minute, but let's get to let everybody get to know you a little bit. Okay, and I promise to be brief. Here we go. <laughs> I grew up in New York City, and for me, sports was color in like a black and white world. And uh, the time I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, there were three broadcast networks. There was no ESPN Sports and media and entertainment was more defined by its scarcity. We worried about being bored. And we now live in an era where everything is upside down. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, not only did I watch a ton of sports, but I was a student of the way sports was presented. I grew up idolizing Rune Arledge and the job that they did on ABC's Wild Mm -hmm. World of Sports and the Olympics. In those days, by the way, the Olympics were generally two hours a night in prime time and was unbelievable entertainment. And I marveled at how, whether it was bowlers or skiers or drag racers, that ABC, by emphasizing who the people were, could get you to care. Mm -hmm. And that made a real impression upon me. So I always wanted to work in sports TV. I also grew up reading Sports Illustrated, which for me was the Bible my dad used to joke that I wouldn't read anything except Sports Illustrated and maybe The Open Man, which is right. a book written by Dave DeBusher. That was the two things I read. <laughs> and that's how I learned about math and the world and everything. So when I was a senior in high school here in New York City, I got a job as an intern at NBC Sports. And among the people working at NBC Sports at the time were Sean McManus, who's president of CBS Sports, your friend Kevin Monaghan, who's still at NBC right. Sports. Was Mike Cohen there then? Mike Cohen, mm-hmm. who was nicknamed Inky. Yep, gave me my start. And, mm-hmm. and that first summer, summer of 1978, basically launched my career. And I, I, I became very close with a fellow named Rex Lardner, who was the producer mm-hmm. of, at that point, the Saturday Major League Baseball Game of the Week. And uh, at the end of the first summer, the people I was working for said, geez, you did a great job. We would love to have you back, but we we couldn't pay you. And I said, I don't care. And so during college, I went for two years to Haverford College and then two years to Stanford University. I would work every vacation, every break, and and I, and I uh, I didn't get paid, but I had such a a background, at least in terms of sort of elementary things at a sports network that I had a good resume, and I got hired at CBS Sports out of college, where I worked on on the scheduling of NFL games, NCAA tournament games, presentations, uh, strategies. Was that the Neil era? This was um, this was Neil Pilson. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. you know, so Neil was running the show. Member and podcast and, um, <laughs> you know, passion has led me to each stage of my career. I was always a huge NBA fan. And at the time I joined CBS Sports, CBS had the rights to the NBA, but it wasn't a priority, at least compared to the NFL and um, the NCAA tournament, which they had acquired, and the Masters and PGA Tour. So I became friendly with the folks who worked at the NBA. At Desser was one, and there were others. And then 
In the summer of 1987, I got a job offer to leave CBS and go to work at the NBA to be the director of broadcasting. And I worked at the NBA for eight years. And that was a dream come true because it was pro basketball. And in those days, you know, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson gave way to Michael Jordan. And I used to tell people, like, this job is just not that difficult because <laughs> Michael Jordan was a transcendent athlete right. like Muhammad Ali in our time and Tiger Woods. He brought casual fans mm -hmm. to the table. NBC, led by Dick Ebersole, took the NBA package away from CBS, and they did it tripling the rights fee. That was a deal that I got to work on, which is incredibly exciting. And I remember we were really prescriptive when we were working on that deal um, so many things we didn't have in those days. We didn't have a studio show. We didn't have a pregame show. And we were very prescriptive. NBC will produce a pregame show, and it will take place in a studio with mm -hmm. set number of cameras. Right. But NBC brought the same sort of Rune Arledge uh, magic touch to the NBA. You had the, you had the debut of Inside Stuff, which was in kids' time on Saturday afternoon. Those kids grew yeah. up with that. So I worked at the NBA for eight years and then got a job offer to work at Sports Illustrated, which was starting a television unit. Mm -hmm. And for those listening who are starting their careers, it's an example of something. It sounded like a great idea. I wanted <laughs> it to be a great idea, but we just we weren't organized. We didn't execute. And I got fired out of there about 18 months into it. Wow. And what I would say is, a little adversity in, in one's career can actually be a positive right. in terms of teaching you humility, teaching you you know, how to better assess opportunities. And um, while I wouldn't wish too much of that on anybody, uh, it kind of helped me. Sure. When I got out, when I got flushed out of SI, David Stern called Steve Bornstein, who's the president of ESPN. He said, Kozner's on the beach. You ought to talk to him. And Steve called me, and I wound up going over to ESPN. So this was, this was um, 1997. Wow. And um, I've always been interested in the intersection of sports, media, and technology. I had worked on a bunch of emerging technologies at the NBA. In my brief time at Time Warner, we had worked on the, the debut of the cable modem and the CNNSI network and mm -hmm. websites. And so... When I got to ESPN, one of my assignments was to work with a group from Starwave, which had a license Jeff to Reese. Jeff Reese mm -hmm. and Tom Phillips and that mm -hmm. group. And I, I cold called them. And I said, I'm so-and-so. You don't know who I am. But, like, I'm in Bristol, and this is my background. And if you guys need help, you know, getting stuff done in Bristol or negotiating league deals, like, I'm around to help. And they took me up on it. And so... I really got immersed in ESPN.com beginning in 1997. In 1999, they offered me the ability to go over to leave programming at ESPN and go over and work on ESPN.com as head of business development or something like that. And, I rem and, and so I chose to do that because I felt like that's where the future was going to be. That's what I was excited about. It was viewed as a very risky decision at the time hmm. because TV companies, some people probably wouldn't even turn on their computers at ESPN. But I, I, I saw the ability to get scores anytime you want and highlights on demand and all the things that it could be. It took a long time. But making that move wound up being prescient because every year going forward, 
things just got clearer to me in terms of understanding. Tom, you know, you had a similar track, so you understand. And we did a deal together your first year there. Remember when I was at the NHL? That's right. And yeah. and so, you know, I I I I worked on the website for about 17, 18 years, and um, um, by the time I left ESPN, which was June of um, of seventeen, I um, I really had. A, a pretty ex- extensive background and really understood what was possible. Mm-hmm. And so th- so that's the, the that's my career in terms of corporate jobs. Since leaving ESPN over the last year and a half, I have reunited with David Stern, uh, who is now a venture capitalist. David works as a senior advisor to Alan Patrikoff at Graycroft Partners, which is one of the top VC firms. He also works with one of the leading bankers named Paul Taubman, who is a company called PJT Partners. And in working with David, we have a set of about 13 small sports tech uh, startups. And these companies, David holds small positions and we serve as advisors for these companies. And it's like a labor of love for me because the companies and the leadership are brilliant. and we're able to share perspective on how they might position their product, what the needs for it is. Meanwhile, you get to experience all this exuberance and energy tackling new problems, which I believe is really significant because existing companies are really pressed now to do anything other than what they do. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of time for other things or R&D, so that energy is coming from, coming from other places. In addition to the work with um, with with David, I'm also also have a few different consulting clients, and those sort of rotate in and out, and that provides me with a way of working with friends and colleagues and helping them solve and address problems. There is a possibility that I might go back and try to take another big job at some point, but it would have to be something that I really wanted yeah. to do and. At this stage of the game, having worked corporate jobs for like 40 years, the most important thing to me is to work on projects that I really love, have passion for with people who mm-hmm. I like and admire. Mm-hmm. So that, that's my story. Wow, and a good one it is. Uh, let me go back to some, some of your thinking at ESPN, because you obviously, I mean, think about that era from 99 until 2017. Starting with dial-up, which I guess it was... Yeah, I mean, we weren't weren't even doing video highlights, I don't think, in 99. We were talking about it, but we couldn't really do it. Um, So you lived through arguably the the fastest growing, most dynamic, most uh, frenzied era in the history of media change. You must, and you had a very high-profile position. You were on kind of the conference circuit, uh, uh, you know, as we know. Um, you must have been heavily recruited. Did you have uh, impulses during that time when, when opportunities presented themselves to be more entrepreneurial, go work for an early stage or startup? This is where, the, the answer is yes, there were a bunch of approaches and some were interesting. This is where, however, having been unsuccessful in the move to Sports Illustrated, I had enough pause and caution to really examine and think about what I wanted to do. Also, the more time I spent at ESPN, we had a close-knit team. A lot of people stayed there for a long time. A lot of people relocated to work there. So I took that really, I took that really seriously. 
Aaron LeBurge, who was our CTO, is now the CTO of, of the Walt Disney Company, used to say, happy people don't leave. Mm. So we spent a lot of time trying to think about, in a big company, how do you make the culture something that people don't want to leave? And, and that got down to listening to what people wanted to do, making sure that people actually got acknowledged and credit mm -hmm. for the work that they did. Mm -hmm. People say they don't care, but that's just not true. Right. They right. really do care. Right. The other thing was we took it as a personal challenge that being big didn't mean we had to be lumbering or slow or not innovative. And part of this was the heritage of Starwave, which we inherited. And a lot of the people at ESPN were Starwave people who had been there a long time, mm -hmm. who had come back. And it was a culture of people who wanted to build things. We had engineers who loved sports, which is really unusual to find. I used to talk a lot about, let's take a look at this challenge, this problem, as if we were starting today and not get all wrapped up in our legacy or we can't like, like, mm -hmm. like, like if we, if the three of us were just trying to solve this problem today, what would we do? Mm -hmm. And that would often lead to more interesting answers to how you might tackle right. a problem than, well, we tried that, didn't work. Yeah. Um, the one thing I would the say last is, guy tried yeah, that. one thing I would say is, having lived through that, which is very exciting, it almost pales to what I observe now. It feels like there's a sort of Moore's law that's, in effect in the world and the pace of change is accelerating I really believe in sports we're gonna see unbelievable changes in the next several years that may even sort of dwarf what we saw previously so yeah. it's almost an appetizer for what's coming yeah yeah John what was your uh, looking back on those 18 years what was your what would you consider your biggest accomplishment and what would you consider your biggest either disappointment or frustration? So um, I think in terms of accomplishments, my observation was that so much happened because we were able to build this belief and we had good fortune that, that, that came as part of it. Just a small example, uh, when I got started, we were, doing, um, we were doing fantasy sports as a paid service. And I vividly remember my first year running ESPN.com is 2003. We have 300,000 um, paid fantasy players. And we do, we, we do like the business review and it's going to grow 5% and everyone is really excited about this. And I don't know any better. And that week, a buyer from General Motors who I knew came in to give me the happy news that they were dropping us for Yahoo. Hmm. And I said, but we have 300,000 users and they're the best users they're paying. And the guy said, well, John, that's all well and nice, but Yahoo has 3 million. Yep. They had gone free. Mm -hmm. And it's like one of those one of those really unhappy days <laughs> where like you just don't understand what, so I, said, ho I said, holy smoke. So I called a new meeting in and I tried to get everyone excited about going free, and it was a real cultural problem. And then, and again, I'm a student of the unintended consequence. Then, out of nowhere, some really key people left, who were working on fantasy, left ESPN to go to work at Sports Illustrated. While that caused all sorts of bad feelings that most have been patched up afterwards, it gave me an opportunity to start over, and that led to the hiring of Matthew Berry. Oh, right. 
Matthew Pretty Barry. Good hire. It, Matthew Barry was a comedy writer who was working with one of my best friends on. Um, I think it was. It may have been the Drew Carey show. And my friend calls up and says, I have this friend, and he's like this fantasy nerd. His dream is to meet you. And so Matthew <laughs> came in, and Matthew had all these great ideas. But when I broached hiring him, the leadership of fantasy at the time wanted no part of him. But when they were gone, Matthew <laughs> came in. So my first idea, which proved to be idiotic, was to let Matthew run everything. Okay, And this was just overwhelming. And Matthew, is, among other things, is not necessarily the best day-to-day manager. Mm-hmm. But when we began to focus on Matthew as a talent and utilizing his ideas, everything kind of took off. So I would say the growth of fantasy in terms of as a business, popular culture, but the truth is that a lot of this was just sort of the unintentional luck of the draw that Mm -hmm. the way it happened. What I would say is I was always somebody to this day that... I make aggressive efforts to meet people, to learn, to understand, and I'm always in my mind recruiting. I'm recruiting people. I'm thinking about ideas. Mm-hmm. And so it may, not, it may not be possible now, but it could be possible in a year. Sure. So when I met Matthew Berry, I said, he's the one. I can't do anything now, but as soon as I could, I did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another thing, like, as you, you know, career guidance is, like, don't, Wait to think about new people or new ideas. Have them in reserve so that when a job opens or something opens, you have a chance to do stuff. In terms of disappointments, you know, I, I ESPN was and is a fantastic television company. That's where the preponderance of the revenue is. That's where a lot of people know it from. And culturally, we got to a pretty excellent place for a long, long time. Where, where there was an acknowledgement that new things were happening and we're going to be innovative and it wasn't going to and it wasn't going to forestall stuff. But if I'm frustrated with myself, I wasn't able to get us to hire enough engineers mm-hmm. in general. I remember Aaron LeBurge, you know, one time he, we, we, we were we were brainstorming what we should do and he had this chart and it was like, here are the number of engineers at Netflix and here are the number of engineers that we had. And it was like it, it was like a dwarfing number, and um, while you could say, well, Netflix is a different business, really, it's all about building the best possible business you can, the best possible experience, and they were redefining how you do that. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that, and I'm saying, like, you know, that's kind that of where, that's work, kind of where yeah. it's at. So, so there are things that we could have built, things that we could have developed and done faster. And I regret not being able to affect that, mm-hmm. even with and I and I think like a lot of people who are who are successful, you aspire to just be world class and great, and you remember the things that didn't happen much more. You know, things <laughs> that did happen were great. Did happen right. great. The last thing I'll say is that while it's awesome having big jobs and a lot of reports and a lot of authority, one of the lessons I learned was it's great until you have to use that power. Mm -hmm. The real leadership is getting people to believe, getting them to understand so that things happen like you didn't have to tell anybody that just happened. And that takes a lot of time and patience and understanding. And when you get to that point, it's incredibly rewarding. And because people feel like they're doing it for themselves. They're not doing it for you. They're not doing it for... They're just into it. I I thought it was interesting. I, I for a second I thought maybe you'd mentioned the ESPN phone. 
Uh, <laughs> I could talk about that. I mean, I It's a little um, item from digital media history that is really interesting to look back on as an object lesson yeah. in companies getting over their skis. So ju- just tell that for, for those who are uninitiated with that story. It really is a classic. Tell, tell that story from your perspective. So, so I think this was about... This was about 13, 14 years ago. A few years before the smartphone, or yeah. before the iPhone, I should say. Yeah. Before the iPhone, and Virgin, um, Virgin had created what was called an MVNO, and, I, and I, I, I forget what that acronym stands for, but basically Virgin had bought mobile, mobile uh, minutes from Sprint and created sort of a customized, a, you know, sort of customized um, cell phone, uh, branded cell phone, and they were selling that service. And this looked to be a brilliant idea. And a bunch of com- companies, including especially Disney, focused on that as like, it's, a, it's white space, it's, right. it's, it's a new idea, and got very, very excited about it. And, um, and the idea was that we were going to have an ESPN a sports branded phone, and we were going to have a Disney branded phone. It became a big initiative, a big sort of shared Disney ESPN initiative. And like a lot of things, I think we had some elements of it right. We were ahead of ourselves and some other things. But I'll never forget, you know, in order to make the numbers work for all the investment and stuff, we priced, the original price of the phone was like $400. <laughs> and there was, a, um, there was a really influential trade called paidcontent.org. Yes, it's run by Rafat Ali, mm-hmm. who now is a super talented guy, now runs Skiff. Right. And I'll right. never forget his lead item one day before launch was this thing's dead on arrival. <laughs> dead on arrival. Not a good day. He wasn't sparing any, right. a, a, any point. And we wound up. You know, prioritizing things like having video on the phone. But what that meant was that the phone was chunky. The first phone was chunky. And this was in a day where the flip phone, uh, the Motorola, I forgot the name of the, the Razor. The Razor yeah. was like the model. The Razor was sort of the iPhone of its day. And we had kind of this chunky right. phone. And I'll never forget, we did this focus group. This is why I kind of got a little, little cynical about focus groups. We did this focus group in November, December, before we were going to launch the Super Bowl. And the focus group said, this is going to be even bigger than you think. So we ordered still more phones. And I think by the time we pulled the plug, I don't know, we had sold thirty to 40,000 phones. It was a tiny thing. And in that day, the ESPN business was so big and still thriving that you could have a episode like that, which was a catastrophe. And... It didn't like I wouldn't say it didn't matter, but we got past it. Yeah. The the positive that I tell about that story is we brought in a bunch of super talented people and we learned a lot about the software experience for mobile phones. And I don't know, about about six, seven years later, six, seven years later, I'll never forget we were in we we were doing like one of our sort of like monthly update meetings for a broader group. This is a super smart research guy at ESPN named Dave Coletti. And I used to ask Dave, okay, so just like run through the numbers for everybody. So Dave would go through the numbers and it was typically like, it was typically like a birthday party. Well, we're number one and for like the 18th straight week and we all like, you know, like it was great. And then he gets to mobile and he says, well, on mobile we had like a 5% lead on Bleach Report. <laughs> and I said, stop. Right. <laughs> like, and I said, I said, you know, 
tell everybody exactly what the numbers are. And that day, as a group, we said, you know what? That's not acceptable. And we turn, and this is like where I talk about attacking the problems if you're, as if you're trying to solve them today versus historically. Mm-hmm. We redeployed effort and reorganized ourselves around mobile and the phone specifically to the point that three or four years later, 80%, 80% of our traffic was on a mobile device, principally a phone. But it was the work understanding mobile software and then the decision to redeploy engineers and product people against the phone Mm -hmm. versus the desktop Mm -hmm. that create that it's almost like when you look at a sports team and they draft well or they trade well and they're able like the Patriots to stay good for so long you have to do the same things in business you have to make those moves and I would say that was really unpopular in many in many places because most of the business was actually on the desktop it wasn't on the you know the mobile phone you know where are you going to put the ads and what's the experience difference but but had we not had we not made that move we would have been we would have been passed Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of making moves and leadership, and you know, we could stand here for or sit here for 25 minutes and talk about some of the amazing people that you've worked with: David Stern, John Skipper, George Bordenheimer, go on and on. Adam Silver. Adam Silver. Right. Who are when you look back from a leadership perspective? Who are some of the people that that people would maybe be surprised who were great leaders or emerging leaders that you saw who've now kind of you know people have kind of figured it out. Other than the big ones, who I'm sure you could go on and on about, you know, how well they led. Are there, are there others that, that you look at and say, he really or she really emerged out of, out of a pack that I was surprised about? You know, I just had a chance to work with a lot of, a lot of super talented people. Adam Silver at the NBA was David's chief of staff early, and you could see, you could see how talented he was and... You know, he worked very hard, and David sort of, you know, you know, work with him, and you know, and to see his development into, into the, um, the, the executive he is, and the tran- and the kind of clean transition. He's obviously an example done very, very well. One person who is who is unsung, I think, or, or not fully appreciated at the NBA is Bill Koenig, sure. who has been there since I was there, and is a just a brilliant, you know. Mm-hmm. Deal maker, strategist, lead, like you know, great, and 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 has been part of their success for mm-hmm. for a long, long time. I mentioned Aaron LaBerge, who is really a brilliant engineer and product person at ESPN, and done so for a long time. Rare to meet engineers who love sports and can explain really complicated concepts in a way that everybody everybody can grasp them. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob King, uh, who is the editor in chief at ESPN.com, super talented guy, worked on SportsCenter. Ryan Spoon, who was our first head of product um, at ESPN, again, again, super talented. Um, let's let's actually uh, talk about some of the big things happening in the business. This disruption where, that where we're we going. mentioned That's before, where we're going, as you as mm-hmm. you said uh, quite uh, well. Um, and let's start with ESPN because they're really at an interesting crossroads when it comes and, and Disney actually the the bigger picture of streaming, um, hottest topic in the business right now, particularly for television businesses and video focused businesses. And there's been this 
frenzy around the world of sports skinny bundles led by ESPN Plus, which is rumored to now have over a million subscribers, according to Jimmy Pitaro at a public conference a few months ago. Uh, you've got Bleacher Report Live, the um, Zone Stadium, SI. Uh, so talk about that, because I know it's become um, a, a mission for the Disney company, because not only do they have to worry about ES, the ESPN brand and sports, they are looking to do the net, the, what they call the Netflix killer with Disney Plus by the end of this year. So Disney is attempting something really difficult and complicated which is that they want to maintain their leadership position in pay television while simultaneously launching excellent direct-to-consumer products. And then, however the future goes, they're, they're sort of well-positioned. They certainly want to know their customers and serve them better than they have in the past. The, it, it's, it, it's, it's sort of an open issue whether you can effectively manage both, you know, simultaneously mm-hmm. and really effectively. If any company can, I would argue that they th- that they can. I think it's really difficult because the nature of a direct-to-consumer business with customer service and managing retention and figuring a bunch of things out is different than just creating a great product that someone else is packaging and selling. On a fundamental basis, I believe a really huge change is in advertising. And in certain ways, when you look at sports, it still looks it still looks the way it always did because sports has this built-in advantage. People watch it live, and the players have to rest. So if Roger Federer is playing at the Australian Open and you're watching his match, when he takes a break between sets, it's a perfectly natural time to have commercials. There are tons and tons of commercials all around the NFL playoff games, and they're now moving the game along and inserting them in. But in anything other than live sports, the ad model is under siege and changing. And if you really think about who has the power now, it's really digital-scale properties that aren't traditional media companies. And I'm talking about Google and Facebook, Amazon's coming, There was a blog last week that mentioned the scale that LinkedIn is reaching in terms of advertising, that part of the plan for Uber is that Uber will sell advertising. And you have these huge companies that that have great scale, great targeting, modern technology. So what's happening is the ad-supported business around on-demand content in any genre is really being challenged. And that's just going to make it more and more difficult. So where I'm going with this is, to me, as you look out, what really matters is what people are going to be willing to pay for. Right. A lot of stuff that's nice to have is just, just going to go away. It's going to be available for free all over the Internet, and it's going to go away. So if you take a look at products and people, companies' products creating really good user experience, doing something that is worthwhile enough for you to pay for, they're going to succeed. So I'm talking about what Spotify is doing. Take a look at Netflix. Netflix today announced that they're going to raise their price by $2. So overnight, I don't know if they have 130 million worldwide subscribers, but, but you know, they're just making that, that, mm. that big move because they can. The reason they can 
is that they have a superior product, a superior experience. It's not trivial for Disney or ESPN or anybody else to create a matching product. One of the conundrums that you have when you work on product is that your audience compares what you do to the best available. Mm-hmm. I remember we used to have we used to have search on our site, which I thought was not very good. And people would say, well, it's better than Sportsline. And I'd say, who cares? <laughs> right. You know, if it's not Google. And I remember, like, Aaron, Aaron the Burge at one point, like, we just took the search out and just plugged in Google, Google right? on, our, right. on our own site, go, our right? own site because yeah. that was a better experience. So when you look at ESPN+, Plus, you look at Disney+, Plus or Bleachport, whatever, you're on some <clears> level comparing it to Netflix. Mm-hmm. You're on some level comparing it to Amazon Prime Video. That's the world they play in, and that's a real challenge. Really, so really the, difficult. The last thing yeah, I'd say is the last thing I'd say is, in terms of all of these sports over-the-top programming services, that's going to have to get sorted out. To me, there are too many and too many in development for for for, for these all to have meaningful businesses. I, I see consolidation or some sort of rebundling to come. Another interesting angle as a follow-up question, John, is that something you, uh, you've been dealing with now for 20 years, that um, while these media businesses that are rights holders, so ESPN is the best example, are doing the best they can and doing quite well at it in digital media, in effect, they're competing with their partner, their rights partners, let's use the NFL as an example, for eyeballs, for time spent on these sites. You, so, so if we take that specific example, you've got a zero-sum game happening to a certain degree, it's, or to a large degree, it's a zero-sum game in fantasy. I can choose to play on the NFL platform, I can choose to play on ESPN. I can choose to read the box scores on ESPN.com, or I can go to the NFL, NFL.com site. Is that tension as real as it feels to me as a consumer and observer of all this? Yes, yes. The only thing I would argue is I don't necessarily think it's a zero-sum game for sports. I think sports can continue to gain overall share, and then in that share there there's a there's like a competition between NFL and Yahoo and ESPN, etc. But it does mean that you constantly have to be improving your product. Right. What you do today is not going to be good enough in two years, and that causes a lot of strain. In addition, you have a generation now growing up, I certainly see it in my children, where the marketing from NFL and NBA, if you want the NFL, come to the NFL. That's worked. That, 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 that didn't used to be no, the case. No, not when we were young. But right? it's worked, and they have great products and services. They've hired smart people. They're investing and aggressive. So, you, you know, that's the environment. And I think that's going to get more intense, right. not less intense. Yeah, and I was actually, I, I, although I didn't make myself clear, I was actually thinking in the context of direct-to-consumer businesses. So, for example, Perfect example, I'm a fantasy player. i got to choose a platform. I switched over just through circumstantial situation with my group, uh, I don't know, five years ago from ESPN to um, NFL. I'm not uh-huh. sure how it happened, but the commissioner moved us over. Right. And suddenly they were getting all my data, all my, you know, all my time spent, et cetera. So, th- so there's that. And then when you think about the skinny bundles, so like an ESPN Plus, which is a kind of a generalized... Uh, group of uh, products, digital products or, or um, uh, sports products, compared to let's say the league 
if you call them skinny bundles or just bundles or small bundles of digital assets such as NFL Game Pass, NBA TV, whatever, just feels like we're asking a lot of consumers to think about buying all these different things or some combination of them. I agree. I, just when, when I think about skinny bundles, I'm more thinking about pay TV offerings from, say, YouTube TV or Sling Fubo or, or, or Fubo yeah, where okay. you're buying – you're buying a set, a smaller set of linear channels. Yes. Okay. Like ESPN Plus and Bleach Report to me are more in like new, over-the-top, direct-to-consumer packages. And yeah, you have, a, you have, you know, you, you can now um, you can now buy the F1 package, right. or do you, or do you want to buy a, 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 you know, a bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. and that's going to be. Uh, and that's going to be a tour live. You have to be fight pass. I mean, and it's like endless. I think the three of us struggle to name all the different services and what they cost. So I can only imagine people outside that. I think right. there's like that's why I think that we're going to get to rebundling of some sort at some time. Um, you touched on this before. Um, one of the things we should talk about are some of the companies that you're working with and must have versus just just use. So. When we looked at um, some of the stuff at the NHL last week, I'll throw out names like Jogmo and WSC yep. and Thuz and Genius Sports, and and they all were beautiful and they all looked at things. How do you how do you differentiate and where do you think the consumer will use for something not only that they just won't pay for but they will use for free versus something else in the in the consumer experience, whether it's at a game or sitting at home or on their mobile phone. With a, and you're looking at a list of a whole heck of a lot of companies yeah. now. I'm looking at a list that I brought with me of the the portfolio that I work with, David Stern put together, which we call micromanagement ventures. If you spend <laughs> enough time with me and David, you'll appreciate the name. And I, I give David the credit for assembling this list of companies and they they really run the gamut to the point I mentioned before existing big companies increasingly are pressured to just do a better job on this sort of essential thing that they do and there's less time available to think of other things so for instance one of David's companies is called Keymotion Keymotion uh, offers basically autonomous cameras that can deliver an HD feed, say, of a basketball game or a volleyball match within an arena. You know, if you've ever watched the play-by-play cameraman, you know, pan Columbia Columbia uses key motion. So so, um, autonomous HD is super important because it would allow you to make available tons more games than are currently available now. It feeds into customization and personalization, Tom, which you were talking about, because if it's your kids' games, you know, or your right. alma mater, you, you know, you may have more of an interest in, right. in subscribing to it. So I believe that's coming. WSC, mm-hmm. which, uh, which was one of the companies featured at the NHL's tech demos at CES, WSC basically replicates a lot of the work that we did at ESPN, except it's all done. It's all done just through computer vision and machine learning and artificial intelligence. It doesn't require a huge conference room of physical loggers mm-hmm. and and interns. It's automated highlights. It's, it's, it's yeah. not. They do autom- They do automated highlight 
creation, mm -hmm. delivery, multiple languages. Um, and the best part about it for me is that their software is smart. And what I mean by that is it's constantly improving as it's doing the work. There's lots of really innovative things that we worked on, but many of them were somewhat static, meaning the same thing over and over and mm -hmm. over again. In this case, it, it, the software learns. Right. And so if you're saying, okay, show me great Jason Tatum plays in the fourth quarter, it's thinking about number of replays that that play generated. What time in the quarter did that play take place? What was the crowd noise like? Mm -hmm. I think Thu's, for instance, also will overlay the social media interaction of a mm -hmm. clip. Yeah. These are all novel, important things that are going to drive this forward. It's another company called Overtime. Yep. We've had Zach, we had Zach Wiener. Yes, yeah, so Zach sure Wiener is fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, they, they've they identified an opportunity in terms of um, in terms of, of young athletes, high school, basketball, football, and they're ushering in now an era where the youngest athletes are much more media savvy than – the older professional athletes. Mm -hmm. I, I I think I saw a stat that Zion Williamson entered Duke University with a much bigger following than the Duke University basketball program <laughs> yeah. itself. Yep. Wow. That's not changing. And yeah. by the way, you know, uh, um, Joe, I think you mentioned it before, talking about esports and gaming. I would venture to say that what we're going to see going forward is that sports are going to much more resemble gaming and esports than the other way around. Everyone thought, well, eSports, so you could have all the trappings of sports come to gaming. I would say, well, some of that's going to happen. Much more is going to happen the other way. So if you look at Twitch, you talked about Ninja doing the Thursday night football game um, for the NFL. But imagine player channels, young players, every sport having a direct relationship with their consumers on the same line, and that being part of the sports experience. So these are just sort of a handful of the mm -hmm. companies that I get to work with. I find that work really exhilarating. These are brilliant entrepreneurs. They will need some luck, but they're, they're solving problems and creating new features that wouldn't exist if they weren't there. And, and it's, yeah, just one more thing mm -hmm. on that is uh, when you and David did the panel during Advertising Week, the thing that David talked about, and you've kind of hinted on it here, is the two things that a lot of these companies need, which you guys provide, are storytelling and then figuring out how they can sell what they have. Yep. So th those are two things. David, among other things, you know, with everything else, I would argue that David is one of the great marketers in the history. I mean, not just sports, but just in general. Mm -hmm. Like he really, he really, really understands that. He understands the assets of what different companies mean and how you build awareness. So, so he and and um, um, <laughs> while. The, while the companies have to get used to his bark sometimes, I mm -hmm. think they're all better for it. Mm -hmm. John, are, uh, we're going to transition to the final few questions in a minute, but one more question on this topic, related, related point. Should the new native digital sports that are Gen Z focused, I mean, eSports is probably the best example, th there's been a, um, a common conceit in the business that they should be clamoring for a television deal. <laughs> Yeah. It feels like we've now learned that maybe not so no, much, and that this long tail might be better served on in the in digital channels because of the customization, all the things we talked about previously. 
You know, in the case of esports, it's a streaming sport, and the audience doesn't necessarily come to the TV right. set. I think the TV could potentially be interesting for marketing in a way similar to the wide world of sports to bring a broader set mm-hmm. of attention. But you're you're not even going to get the audience there. Right. You know, when Turner does CSG Go, they're also streaming it on Twitch, and that's part of what they're presenting and selling. And that's and the, and the reason is that's where the audience is. Right. You're only going to see. You're only, you're, you're only going to see more of it. Um, one of the demos I saw at CS really fascinated me. A couple of companies are working on this. Is not is is sub-second latency streaming. So for for all of us who are used to streaming today, you know, there's this time lapse. And, you know, like in my apartment in the Upper West Side of New York City, Tom Brady will score three different times depending upon what room you're in. (laughs) But I saw services now that could deliver the live feed to everybody simultaneously. Okay, they're not widely deployed yet, but that's powerful and that's going to come. If that comes, then you begin to get to a point where streaming can be better than broadcast because in that case, all of us would walk around with the exact same feed, social media interaction, gambling would be more meaningful. You wouldn't have that sort of um, that sort of spoiler thing that happens now when an alert flashes that something's already happened, hasn't happened in the game yet. Right. So there's still much growth to come. Joe, I just thought of something. We have to add a couple minutes to this. Everybody's cool with this. We haven't gotten your opinion about the potential impact of legalized sports betting, mm-hmm. especially in the media business. Sure. So now, the in one, less than two minutes, what do you think? So, so one thing I'll say is is there was a wrinkle today where the Department of Justice announced changes to the Wire Act, saying the Wire Act is not just uh, is not is not only sports gambling, but applies to lottery and poker and other stuff. None of the people I talked to today were exactly sure what that means, other than it's not necessarily great. Let's presume that that doesn't derail what's going on. Sports gambling uh, is going to be just a huge, huge deal and is going to sort of redefine how sports are presented. Uh, David Levy, I thought, did a great job Mm -hmm. at the CES panel. He made a point, like any sport now, let's say you're Major League Lacrosse, let's say the Pro Bowlers Tour, every sport now should be thinking about real-time data. You talked about Jogmo, Mm -hmm. and in their case, you know, the the sensor and the puck. The the creation of real-time data and the ability of people to do in-game wagering um, one of the stats I heard, one of the stats I heard at CES was that in Europe and Asia, 80% of gambling <laughs> takes place on a mobile device. 70% sports gambling, 70% is is actually in the game itself. Mm-hmm. So we haven't seen that yet in no. the U.S. Right. and it's coming. Uh, I tend to think these things always take longer than people expect. So people say, "Well, what's the horizon?" I don't think it's two years. I think it's more like three to five. But I, but I believe that it, that that it's going to be huge and is really going to is really is, is really going to change things. It's going to change how people do their schedule. I actually think it could lead to a resurgence in sports like horse racing mm-hmm. that people you know where you have all this live programming on during the day right. that people could bet on and get get interested in. Some of it, ironically, is going to tie back to the storytelling from where I launched. Right. The beauty of what Rune Arledge did was he got you to care, yep. and you wouldn't care otherwise. I think mm-hmm. a lot of this is going to be, is this just another way to get people involved and get them to care? Yeah, No. and you think about that coupled with the fact that 
the long tail of sports now that it has distribution, sometimes even on mainstream. There was I, I want to just cite one example from a few weeks ago. There was a night in December where on ESPN, or I think it was ESPN2, there was cornhole, dodgeball, and I'm not making this up, axe-throwing, yeah. the World Axe-Throwing yeah. League, which I actually I went to that site to check it out. Mm. So and I'm thinking, wow, this is really different than a few years ago. Um, yeah, you and forgot you think, spike ball, too. <laughs> right. Well, there's, there's a lot more than that, but the point being that it's not just about betting on NFL or NBA. It's you can pretty much... So long like, as you have the data. Right. And you yeah. think about darts, which is extremely yeah. popular. We learned from the BBC a few weeks ago. Yep. Um, and you guys are listing all thing. the reasons that we continue to be bullish about the significance and growth potential of right. sports. Right. Yep. All right. Well, with that said, that was awesome. Um, so a couple of final questions, John. How do you keep up with everything? How do you stay smart? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Who do you follow? So I try to talk to as many people as I can. It's easier not having my former job. So that's one way I keep up. Second, I love setting notifications on Twitter. I find Twitter fascinating for reasons that are, might be slightly different than others. The, the most brilliant people on earth are on Twitter. And I'm very, very interested in who influences influencers. So on any topic that I'm interested in, it could be the president, it could be the NBA, whatever, I'm constantly digging into Twitter to find out, okay, if so-and-so is a purported expert, who is he or she following? Right. Yep. Then if you, if you follow on Twitter, the button to the left of the follow button allows you to set notifications. So almost all of my news gets delivered, and I'm constantly changing. Sometimes I'll follow people, and they'll wear me out, and so I'll turn them off. <laughs> but I'm constantly having stuff delivered. So it's rare on something I care about and the range of things that that news isn't delivered to me. Interesting. So, for example, sports TV ratings or something like that. Right. Like the sports news comes TV. in about the college football playoff or something. Sports and, and TV ratings is yeah. a great follow. There's another one I'm blanking on. Um, uh, uh, Paulson, um, uh, Paulson on sports. I'm blanking on. Oh, really? I got to find that. Yeah, out. I don't, I, I'm yeah, not sure of that uh, one. Jody, not. No. no. Really, re- really, really. Good. Are you a notification user? No, because I'm, I'm, I'm not. I, I'm a so. list user. I'm not a notification. I'm a guy. power user of right. notifications. Yeah, okay. you know, that's, I, that's the first time someone said yeah. something to do on a Tuesday night. Now, yeah, so. that's yeah. good. Um, what about? Are you into podcasts? I am into podcasts, and I love podcasts. I love Ben Thompson's podcast, Exponent. Yeah. I'm yeah. constantly finding others. When I was at ESPN, Bill Simmons really sort of set the, mm-hmm. the, the standard and right. got people excited about podcasts. There are podcasts on any, any, any amounts of subject. What I love about podcasts, I also love about sports radio, is like life is lived in them. You can watch a TV interview, but when you listen to the way people express things, you just learn stuff. Peter Kafka, I think, does a fantastic yeah, job at yeah. you know, Recode. Um, you know, uh, podcasts are standing. So, so, so one thing I do is I have a pair of AirPods, which are one of my favorite Apple products, and I also got a subscription to Audible, and I will use every walk as an opportunity yep. to listen to a little more of a podcast or chapter of a book, all, all, right. all these things. It's like it's created new sort of, um, Artie Bogan used to have expression, sort of new, new, new sort of elements of time, yeah. getting 31, 31 hours into a 24-hour day. <laughs> right. And then you can use the trick that I think we heard from Joe Jeremy Goldberg from League Apps on this listen podcast where he listens to it at 2x. Yeah. 
Yes, no, I, <laughs> I, I listen to them at like one and a quarter, one, uh, okay. one and a half, yeah. yeah I usually yeah. do 50%. Yeah. <laughs> 78 versus 32. No, actually, no one on this will know it's what funny means, you mentioned uh, Ben Thompson because we, we, I'm a big fan of his as well, and it's a, it's a part of my class. Um, but I often listen to him like two or three times because there's, it's so dense, it's dense yeah, with you, references yeah, right, no, and insights that you really have to think about. I agree. Uh, but that's a sign of a good podcast. And anybody mm-hmm. interested, anyone interested in technology and strategy, Ben Thompson's um, podcast called Exponent also has an example of the best show notes. Just as like, yes. it's like a best yeah. practice. Yeah. The show notes on that thing are exceptional. You a yeah. fan of Ferris? Um, some, I yeah. but but I'm not a regular listener. Yeah. Although, like, there's so much going on that there are fantastic podcasts I haven't listened yeah. to. Yeah, I'm, I'm I cherry pick po- yeah. uh, Ferris because when it's good, it's really yeah. good. Um, okay, and the last question yeah. is: uh, we have a lot of students, people coming in, parents. What's the the one or two advice pieces that you try to leave behind with anyone who's either changing careers, starting out in careers, uh, or trying to learn more about what they're doing? So I wrote down three things, and this is really targeted more at people who are starting out, but I think it's valuable for everybody. One is be prepared. Second is be on time. And third is be heard. Okay? In terms of be prepared, what I mean is that we live in an era now where more information, high quality, is available to anybody for free. So there is no reason to Mm -hmm. show up for anything, anything not really prepared. When you go in for a job interview and you've taken the time to look at the person's LinkedIn or what's going on and you have customized questions for that person, that person will leave impressed with you whether there's a job or not. The best executives will make a note that this person is good. References matter. Going in and sort of having open-ended conversations with people where you only have you know, 20 minutes to make an impression is a missed opportunity. So, Tom, Joe, when we were growing up, we'd go to the library and look through microfiche. Like, you Encyclopedia. Know, you know, <laughs> you know so, so be prepared for everything. Mm-hmm. And the younger you are, the more important that is. Second, be on time. I realize this is an obvious thing, but it's, it's such a killer when, when people are lazy about it. And it exists at all levels. Right. Third, and this is most important, is take the risk to be heard. If you have an opinion, say it. You don't get any place by not saying anything. And I tell, I tell people starting out, be a student of the data. Come in with points that people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Frequently, you'll be in these meetings, and I think, I think, I think, and it's like, it's just, it's, it's like a bunch of opinions. The person who says, well, you know, 80% of sports gambling in Asia right. takes place on a mobile device, and 70% is within the course of the game. Everyone's going to sit up and like, okay, oh. that gets you to focus. And, and the way you get there is to be prepared. So I tell people, like, you know, find your voice. Be heard. You, you have to try to say it in a way that can be received. Mm-hmm. You know, telling someone their idea is dumb is not necessarily the best way to move ahead. You have to find a way to express that. But it's super important <laughs> to make the point that you believe in because otherwise nobody's going to do it for you and it's a missed opportunity. Right. So related to that, just as a quick follow-on, because we talk about Twitter a lot, uh, uh, obviously on the podcast and uh, here in the program. So do you think young people that, for example, in your old job, you were hiring a lot of, probably a lot of young people, 
Um, were you impressed with people that had jumped into the fray, let's say on Twitter, and actually made their voice heard in that way, even was, if it was subtle or, or I small? I was super impressed when they had made their voice heard on what their topic or expertise right, that's what was. I mean. I, I meant that. I yeah. found it was poisonous and continues to be for people to inject all their personal, political, mm-hmm. social views there. And I think it makes it very hard when you're trying to follow someone as an expert of a sport to separate. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're not, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but I think it's very, very important to keep it focused on what it is yeah. that that you're doing, especially when someone else is paying your paycheck. <laughs> and And the people who are best, especially on Twitter, you know, they're listening to their audience. You know, I, I tell people all the time, like, the answers are out there. If you take a look at a site and you see what people are searching for, what they're reading, it tells you what they want. Right, right. And, you know, similarly, when you put stuff out, you know, you get you get essentially a report card all the time about, about, about different stuff. So um, it's incredibly valuable for people to be building awareness, following, for any number of, of reasons. The people like Darren Ravel just left ESPN and went to work for the Action Network. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great acquisition for the Action Network. I think Darren did a terrific job at ESPN, but the material thing is he and his two million followers move, mm-hmm. right? That's, yep. that's, yeah. that's the modern world, super powerful. Yeah, yeah, yep. outstanding. So speaking of Twitter, where can everybody find you? Uh, at Jay Kosner. So that's J-K-O-S-N-E-R. Right. Um, any other things you want to promote about finding you or stuff you're working on? No, it's just uh, it's just an honor and a privilege to be here today. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, uh, do we think this is going to come out before the NYBC event? Should we mention that? It may. Uh, it may, yes. Yeah. So, right. so, so we'll throw it out there. Joe, yeah, go ahead. So next Thursday, January 24th, uh, it will be at uh, the New York Athletic Club. Uh, and for anybody who wants to come to NYVC Sports, uh, the panel is going to be on the value of the Latino marketplace in sports. Uh, Jeff Idelson is the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame who's taken a real interest in it. Uh, will be there um, Jay Sharman from mm-hmm. Levita Baseball, uh, Eduardo Perez from ESPN. Uh, it's at 6 p.m. Um, you can sign up at NYVC Sports. I think it's nyvcsports.com, yes, right? NYVCSports.com. Or follow it on, on Twitter. Uh, the application, the uh, link will be there. Yeah. Uh, and if you're getting this on the Monday, you'll probably be able to send uh, a couple days early and, and come yeah. see us. And next it's open Thursday. registration. So open, open registration. To all. Yep. Yeah, and it should be a great event, you guys. Six o'clock at uh, the New York Athletic Club. Right. Excellent. Well, um, John, on behalf of uh, Joe and Tom and everybody here at Columbia, thank you so much for your time, for your insights, for for your uh, for your good. Um, your good commentary. It was really, really mm-hmm. fun to talk to you. And by the way, thank you again for visiting my class last, uh, I think it was in what, December. Uh, that was a really fun. fun Pleasure experience. is all mine. Yeah. Um, and we'll be seeing you uh, around the industry. Joe, great show. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Really happy this uh, New Year starting out with such uh, amazing conversations. So thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, this has been the Columbia University Sports Podcast, the Cusp Show, and we'll see everybody next time.